our church family just blesses me so much. We've had uh, such great testimonies this morning, and, and Wade and Ann and uh, and Isaiah did such a great job with the Covenant Kids, and all we saw yesterday, I was at the youth group last night, and our youth team is doing an amazing job. You saw some of the pictures from that group. God is doing great things in our midst, and we're not closed, uh, to use that little adage. Uh, we're very much open. We may not be meeting in person on Sunday gatherings, but we are still active and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I encourage each of you to be active, to be looking for opportunities to serve the Lord. As I was looking right before I came online, I saw we had people watching. Uh, George Wafula is watching from Kenya again. It's great to have him. We have people from California, Alabama, South Carolina, Costa Rica, the Philippines. Uh, sometimes we have Canada. I don't know if they're on today or not. What a blessing to be able to connect with so many of you, and we're really blessed that you would take the time to join us this morning. We've been looking at a study in the book of Revelation, uh, namely his letter to the seven churches in Revelation. And we've looked uh, already kind of our summary introduction and then the church in Ephesus and Smyrna last week. And this week we're looking at the church in Pergamum. So if you have your Bible, or if you have that new little app, you can look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, and we'll begin reading. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. <clears throat> this uh, this city of Pergamum, uh, only thing left right now of Pergamum is are, are just ruins, and you can find them in the country of Turkey, modern day Turkey. But when the Apostle John wrote his letter, it was one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, Strabo, uh, the Greek historian, called it illustrious. And Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, called it by far the most famous city in Asia. It had quite a reputation. Now, while Ephesus and Smyrna were major hubs of commerce, Pergamum was a bit different. It was more of a political center and a metropolis of innovation and medicine. They, they perfected in Pergamum a parchment made out of calf skin, and they built the world's first so-called psychiatric hospital. Pergamum was also the center of arts and culture, uh, with their Acropolis rivaling the one in Athens, and they had a 10,000-seat theater with perfect acoustics. There wasn't a bad seat in the house. And there was a library there that was the second largest in the ancient world and whose collection was so great, get this, that it was Mark Antony's wedding gift to Cleopatra. But Jesus 
has a different impression about this city. He is writing to the church there in Pergamum, and he called this city the dwelling place of Satan, his throne. That's, uh, that's a really stark and vivid description. What is it that made this place in the New Testament, this, this place this church dwelt, the location of Satan's throne? Well, like uh, many other Roman cities, including the ones we looked at in Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was steeped in the emperor cult, uh, where people would worship and be called upon to worship the Roman emperor. There were three major temples of worship to Roman emperors there in Pergamum. But it also had temples to other gods, so-called gods. It had temples to the goddess Athena and to Dionysus, the Greek god of winemaking, fertility, ritual madness, theater, and religious ecstasy. You can imagine that such a temple had tremendous debauchery and ritual, and it was all entwined in this practice that was actually put on display, but it was abhorrent to God. But maybe the most famous temple in this city was the enormous um, 40-foot-high altar to Zeus, the Greek god, the father of gods, who this altar was perched up on the city's highest point. And many scholars believe that this was the uh, altar that John is referring to when he calls it the throne of Satan. You see here a photo that they're showing on your screen where the foundations for this altar are still located as ruins in the upper city. But in the late 19th century, German engineers dismantled the altar to Zeus and they took it back to Berlin. The next picture is gonna show you, they're gonna get there, is it there yet? There it is. Uh, they're going to they're gonna take that altar and reassemble it in Berlin at the Pergamum Museum. And they did that and finished it in 1930, just in time to inspire one of history's most brutal dictators, Adolf Hitler. Fascinating that many people have viewed this altar to Zeus as the throne of Satan. But Pergamon had a, another temple. It's a temple of healing, uh, or what some people might have called a medical college. It was called the Asclepion, dedicated to the Greek god for healing, Asclepios. And it's symbolized by a serpent. And you probably know this. Even today, symbols for medicine have serpents in them. One of them in particular, the rod of Asclepios, which is a staff entwined by a serpent. Now, the Asclepion was like a hospital of sorts, but also a, a health spa and a temple all rolled into one. And patients could get everything from a mud bath to major surgery. Even Roman emperors came to Pergamon to be treated here, uh, but it was no ordinary doctor's visit. Patients uh, were, uh, were drawn into the temple healing center through an underground tunnel, and then they were given a sedative to drink, and then they were spending the night there and 
type of a type of dormitory. And as they slept, <clears throat> snakes were released to crawl around them and on them. <clears throat> I know it, it gives me the creeps too. I hate snakes, but this is what happened. They would release these non-poisonous snakes among these patients who had been sedated. And it was thought that the snakes carried healing power from Asclepios. And if a snake slithered across the top of you while you were sleeping, well, that was a good sign. It wouldn't be to me. I don't know that any sedative would keep me from realizing what was happening, but it was seen as a good sign that they would be healed. And the next morning, uh, these patients that had been sleeping there that night would tell their dreams to priests, and those priests or practitioners would prescribe treatments based on their dreams. And then the patient would make a clay sculpture of the body part that needed healing and offer it as a sacrifice to the Greek god Asclepios. Wow. Uh, you know, I find it interesting that humanity has been trying to heal itself ever since sin and sickness entered our story. We are, we are constantly trying to fix what only God can. And, and it makes me realize that just about anything in life can be made into an idol, even the pursuit of good health. Of course, <clears throat> I don't think that those that are in the medical field are pagan priests. I'm married to a nurse, so I promise you, I don't think that. But I do think that in our enlightened culture, society looks to science as having the answer to all of our problems. And that has become our new religion. It's become the religion of our culture and society. And for many, the endless pursuit of good health has turned into a religious experience. I want to remind us of the, of the first commandment in the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> I and the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. <clears throat> now, it's easy for us to see all of those that might have built idols of stone or wood as what he's talking about. Our idols are just a lot more sneaky. They're hidden. They're philosophies. They're pursuits. They're aims that we that we strive for. But when we pursue even good things instead of pursuing God, that's idolatry. <clears throat> when we pursue the thing that God would give to us instead of the one who gives to us, that's idolatry. And what was meant to serve us oftentimes becomes the thing we serve, and that's idolatry. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what the scripture tells us. Jesus told us these things, to seek first him, his kingdom, his righteousness, and then all of these other things would be added unto you. Don't seek the gift, seek the giver. Don't make a pursuit of even a good thing like good health. Become your God. Seek God and he will become your healer. So, yeah, this city of Pergamum, it's understandable why Jesus would say, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was entrenched in idolatry with 
every single political, religious, and cultic institution opposing this small, fledgling New Testament church to the point that Satan even flexed his might against one of its leaders, a man named Antipas, and he put him to death. And it was traumatic for this church family, yet in the midst of this persecution, they held fast to the name of Jesus, and Jesus commended them for it. But while they stood against Satan's frontal assault, they let a deadly enemy sneak in the back door. The Nicolaitans, we've, we've heard about them before when we looked at the church in Ephesus, and we'll talk about them again when we study the letter to Thyatira. But by allowing the false teaching of the Nicolaitans to infect some in their congregation, they were endangering the whole church. And Jesus makes clear that this is among the things that he has against them. And you remember, he says in many occasions of these letters to the seven churches, but I have this against you. And when Jesus says that to you, well, you should really listen because you don't want to have Jesus having anything against you. Jesus likens their issue to the teaching of Balaam, who was a very interesting figure. He was an Old Testament prophet, but he was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. And Yet, he had a gift. He could hear and see things prophetically that God would reveal to him. It's, it's a fascinating piece to realize that such a gift would be given to someone who's not a Jew. But at any rate, this Balaam, uh, Old Testament prophet, was a prophet for hire. And he was hired by the Moabite king Balak to curse Israel. Uh, and on multiple occasions, Balak keeps taking him to show him just how ferocious and bad this Israelite mob is going to be towards him. But God restrains Balaam from ever cursing them. He won't let him do it. But, uh, but Balaam gets around this restraint by eventually counseling Balak to draw Israel into God's disfavor by luring them into illicit relationships with women from Moab and, and then enticing them to worship their gods. It was a seductive plan. It was subtle. And Balaam was cunning to have offered it. Balaam's legacy throughout the history of Israel is, is horrific. It's not good. And his reputation is even carried over into the New Testament. Peter spoke about him when he warned against false prophets and teachers in, first, in 2 Peter 2, verse 1. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And that's a stark sentence when you realize that he's talking to a New Testament people. I would propose that there are still false teachers today in this New Testament period. He says, just as there will be false teachers among you, you will secretly bring in, or who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then down in verse 14, Peter continues, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. 
Remember, these are false teachers among God's people. And look at that description of those people, of those kinds of leaders and false teachers. We continue reading verse 15. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but, re, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, that's a part of the story that's even more outlandish, and I don't have time to get into it. We just know that Balaam was not someone that was reputable in God's eyes or in the people of God's eyes. Jude, uh, the writer of Jude, also warned about this. In Jude 3, he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about your common, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to all saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Sounds like what happened in Pergamum. They've crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now listen, Cain and Korah, those are not good stories. If you go back and research them, you realize that we're talking about rebellion against God, uh, killing of a brother, and then also Balaam is right there in the middle of them. These are not guys we want to model ourselves after. What was Balaam's error? Well, Peter says that he loved gain from wrongdoing. And Jude says he allowed pagan beliefs out of greed. And he perverted the grace of God into a license for immorality. He looked to be following God on the surface, but he was double-minded. He was covetous. He was subversive to God in his plan. John J. Parsons writes, Balaam was a hireling, a spiritual prostitute who wanted to sell his services. He was in possession of charisma which he used to secure others into disobedience. He was paid for exercising his gifts without regard for the truth. As, as Balaam showed the Moabites how to lead Israel into sin, so the Nicolaitans in Pergamum were showing Christians how to fall into sin. They were, they were setting up a stumbling block. They were leading people into apostasy. And, and while we don't know their precise teaching, it seems very likely that the Nicolaitans were teaching compromise, that, that followers of Jesus could remain in their previous life. They could, they could maintain membership in the pagan clubs. They could engage in immoral acts and still call themselves Christian. It was, it was a massive error. It was a an erosion of their sanctification, their set-apartness. God has set us apart for his purpose. And, and the Nicolaitans were encouraging that you didn't have to be set apart. And simultaneously, they were denigrating their witness. When I, when I think about all of the forces at work against in today's church, 
against today's church and in the church. All the attacks that we see coming our way, I believe it's not the frontal assault we should be worried about. It is the enemy that we let in the back door. It's the era of Balaam, where we gain from wrongdoing and pervert God's grace into a license for immoral behavior. It's the complacency we invite. It's the idol we worship. It's the erosion we allow. Such syncretism is more deadly than the frontal attack we see coming. And if we don't do business with God to get the back door closed and the stuff swept out, judgment will come from him long before it comes from outside. It's crept into long-standing institutions, Christian institutions, and so-called church leaders who at one time held orthodoxy but have now chosen to accept and promote practices and lifestyles that are diametrically opposed to Scripture. God is a God of love, but he is also a God of judgment, and he will judge his own who do not keep their lives to him, before him, and in him. Listen, whether it seeps into big religious institutions or not, I can't answer for But I can answer for this. Has it set seat into me? Has it crept into me? Has it entered into my life through some back door that I didn't slam shut? And now it is eroding my commitment to him and I have mixed my faith as if I could continue in immorality or in unbelief or in faithlessness and still call myself a follower of Christ. It's deadly. This church in Pergamon, they had had tolerated this false teaching. And while the Ephesians had forgotten how to love, the church in Pergamon had neglected to tell the truth. And it was bringing them close to God's wrath. The good news, and there is good news, is that Jesus called them to repent. Look at verse 16. Therefore, Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you, or war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The solution for the church in Pergamum was the same as the solution for the church in Ephesus. Remember, repent, and return. Change the dangerous direction you're heading in and get right with God. It's the narrow way, as James reminded us last week, but it's the only way that leads to life. There is no other way by which you can live and be saved. In Pergamum and in the church today, the victor is the follower of Jesus who not only stands fast in the face of pressure from Satan's throne, but who also resists the temptation to conform for the sake of personal convenience. Instead of consuming what was sacrificed to idols, 
He will dine on the hidden manna from heaven. And instead of being named among those who are false teachers, he will be given a new name written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I want that. I want his manna, not food sacrificed to some other God. I want his white stone with my name that only I know this mystery between father and son. I can allow his identity to be formed in me. That's what I want. That's why Paul would say to the Roman church, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's what I would say to us today. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I'm going to ask Donna to come. We're going to pray for you as we conclude today. It's always one of my favorite parts of our gathering as we've been able to do this where we're together. So it's a blessing to have her come and share anything the Lord's put on her heart and then we'll pray for you. It was great. Um, I have a couple of scriptures <clears throat> I want to read before I pray. Once again, I'm so amazed at how God pulls the thread all the way through. What Patrick shared today um, after the worship, what Stephanie shared, what Wade was saying from the, the um, Camp Overcomers, and then, of course, Chris's message. And there's such a strong thread of the power of the name of Jesus running through it all. Um, and I love it when God does that. Um, so my verses that I wanted to read to you are out of um, John 10. James told us, I guess it was last week, that there was a narrow gate and that we needed to make decisions about which gate we enter. And so out of John 10, it says, Jesus calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out and he goes ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Mm. They don't follow a stranger. In fact, they run away because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Mm. Therefore, Jesus says again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate of the sheep. I am the gate and whoever enters through me will be saved. But you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to me, they know me, they follow me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. In light of that, we, as his sheep, have a responsibility. In Hebrews 3, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of us have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, that is led away by the stranger's voice, but encourage one another daily. So now we're back to what Patrick said today. How do we love each other well? We have to encourage each other daily as long as it is called today so that none of us may become hardened and deceived. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end. Mm. When Chris was reading those ending 
passages where it all, uh, where each of the letters ends with, okay, hear my voice in this. Mm-hmm. And then he gives us a promise if we hear. And he says, to those who are victorious, right. victorious over what? Mm-hmm. Victorious over sin, victorious over deception, mm-hmm. victorious over living in Satan's throne, which I think we could all agree that's where we live on the earth. Just like Pergamum, we are living in Satan's city. But we can be faithful. And one of the places we can be faithful in is how we love each other Mm -hmm. as believers. Are we encouraging each other every day so that you don't fall into sin's deception and I don't fall into sin's deception? We're in it together. And what we do towards each other makes a difference in in how we live and it's going to make a difference in whether we are victorious or not. That's right. And I don't know about you, but I want my white stone. Yes, I do too. <laughs> I want to know what God calls me. That's right. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you sent Jesus to be the narrow gate for us and to teach us how to recognize his voice. Mm. We receive the limitations of that gate today. We submit to the narrowing of the way, the focus that you're bringing us to that strips away the clutter, the distraction, the comforts. And we commit to loving each other and encouraging each other daily as a protection against deception, Mm -hmm. against forgetting that we are God's beloved, and following Balaam or personal health or Mm -hmm. the glories of science or anything else that we put out there ahead of who you are in our lives. God, we can't do it on our own. You sent us the helper. Mm -hmm. You shed your blood, but you shed your blood to bring those who were near and those who were far into one, that together we might glorify your name and we might overcome the sin in our own hearts and in this world by acknowledging that you are Lord, that you are great, that you are with us, and that you've called us into your life right now, not in some eternal moment, but right here, right now, today. So we receive your word. We ask you to bury it deep in our hearts. Mm that we might respond to you with love and obedience. Yes. Lord, we remember, we repent, Yes. and we return to you. Would you heal us? Mm. Would you sweep out the, the, the things in our lives that have become idols, mm. that have become uh, forces that are opposed to you, that are drawing us away into personal gain or even immorality or yes, certainly right. attitudes that exalt themselves against the knowledge of mm. God. Would you flush that out of our lives, I pray? Mm. Would you cleanse your people? Would you close the back door and lock it? And may we keep our eyes fixed on you. And may we stand for not only loving you, and our neighbor, but also stand for your truth, that it would first be resident in our own lives, in our community, and even to those beyond. I pray a blessing upon everyone that's listening today, that they will not sense condemnation, Mm -hmm. that they will not sense judgment, 
they will sense conviction if you are leading them into a place of repentance that they will respond to you in gladness because you mean it for their good. Yes. We bless them, bless our people, Lord, that we might be a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you very much. Yes, we do. We'll see you next time.